Okay. Hey, um, should we introduce the show? We should introduce the show. But for those of you, it's been a while. It's yeah. been a hot minute. It's been like the whole summer, pretty much. So we should probably um, apologize for the hiatus. But if you watch cartoons, you probably watch Steven Universe. And if you watch Steven Universe, you have probably acquired a massive hiatus tolerance by now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you're used to it. Yeah. Yeah, we we won't we won't do you like Rebecca Sugar does you though. How <laughs> dare release, her! Release like two episodes and then just like go back on hiatus forever. But uh, we'll vent our anger when we get to Steven Universe. Yes, of course. Of that course. that sultry seductress. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, so I um, I this is Animates. Yeah. Um, I'm Paige, and I'm joined here by my friend, Dr. Chris. That's right. I have a doctorate, which uh, in the greater world means that everything I say is right. Yeah. Yeah. Since um, since we last recorded an episode, Chris has finished his bona fide 100% of the time rightness card, which is what a PhD is. Exactly. Exactly. It's not about finding the truth. It's about dictating the truth. About <laughs> being the truth. Exactly. I am by, I am a pillar of truth. <laughs> um, but no, it's good to be done. So I'm excited. We're going to be back on a regular schedule. We get to finish, not finish. We're discussing another Cartoon Network episode or show today but it, it is going to finish up our cartoon network like segment this Cor is the last of the you know we're doing the big three big four thing, big three from the big four and so this will wrap up our first foray with cartoon network and what a way to go we're <laughs> speaking today and i one of the things we'll talk about in this show is the music so I'm naturally going to play the intro because it's what I always remember when I think of Courage, the Cowardly Dog. Mm -hmm. It just, it just is. And we're talking about Courage, the Cowardly Dog. That show, <laughs> that show that probably creeped you out when you were a little kid. Oh my God, it creeped me out so bad. We interrupt oh. I see Paige and I differ on our responses to the show. And I'm not going to say it's because Paige is a girl, but it's because Paige is a girl. It's also, I think, remember how when we, the first time we got to a Cartoon Network show, when we got to Dexter, and I was talking about how I didn't watch a lot of Cartoon Network and how things were drawn in this, like, really visceral way that made me feel kind of icky. Well, with courage, things are drawn in this really visceral way that makes me feel, like, frightened. It almost reminds me of, like, okay, did you ever see Peavy's Big Adventure? No, and I people are going to yell at me because I don't really have any experience with Peavy's Playhouse anything. Okay. Well, in, in Peavy's Big Adventure, um, 
there's basically a scene with like big Marge or whatever. And she's, you know, giving it, she's a trucker. She's giving him a ride, whatever. But it turns out she's actually some like ghost or something. And so he gets out of the truck and then she makes this really scary face at him. It's like, a like her face is suddenly claymation and it's really frightening. And I, as a child that just like really like viscerally affected me. And there's a lot of the way that stuff is animated in courage like gave me that same feeling as a child. And that's very, very true. They accentuate certain features, uh, particularly of body parts, that mm -hmm. always made me, it made me feel icky, but I, I don't know. It didn't bother me as much as I think it bothered some other people. And this is coming from a person who didn't really watch Ren and Stimpy because I thought it was too icky. Like the animation really creeped me out with the close-ups of like gross yeah, faces. No, we're gonna have to eventually cover Ren and Stimpy, and I don't know how I'm gonna deal with it. Technically, we should cover that in an adult cartoon section of the show. But yeah, we'll have to. We'll cover it one day, and like I just don't know how I'm gonna handle it. <laughs> Because I have to watch. Yeah, we have to watch it, and I I didn't really watch that show. I'm I'm not gonna be a poser and be like I've watched every cartoon ever. Um, so that'll be an adventure. That'll be an adventure for us, I'm sure. But we're talking about Courage the Cowardly Dog, yeah, and we'll so. get. We'll we should introduce the show for those who aren't exactly familiar. The show is. The premise is there's a dog and a family in the middle of nowhere, and we abandoned and, as a pup. Abandoned as a pup. <laughs> yeah, this dog was found by this woman named Muriel, who's who lives in the middle of nowhere with her husband Eustace Bags. <laughs> um, creepy stuff happens in nowhere, and it's up to courage to save his new home. Um, <laughs> it's all right there. It's all right there in the intro. Um, oh but my god! Okay, so like real another quick digression. Opening themes that are actually monologues. Which one is better, Courage the Cowardly Dog or Avatar: The Last Airbender? <laughs> they're so different, though, because they're very different. They're very different. Courage. It, it, it states the premise, but it's kind of like, it's this Kansas country-sounding newscaster, and they always, like, for about a couple seconds on the TV, they always show some different monsters that are going to mm -hmm. appear in the show, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them are yeah, like red herrings. Does he ever show up? <laughs> I, I don't know specifically about the angry banana, but I know that a lot of the things they show on there never show up in the show. They're just... Weird. I know. I know. It is weird. Just like the entire show. Uh, <laughs> That's true. The show comes to us via Cartoon Network, right? But it was created by John Dilworth. So if you're creeped out by the show, you can go speak to Mr. Dilworth about uh and it, i mean it was written created by he directed the whole show he it's basically his show yeah he was like 
there is not a single episode where Dilworth's name is not like prominently featured. You know, he was definitely like the main sort of auteur of the show. I I can't imagine what it would have been like without him or if somebody else had really stepped in to fill like the director's role. I just get the sense that I, it's hard to tell because stating that without him, the show would have been much different. Like his style is what made the show what it was. Like that's a speculation. And it's also confounded by the fact that he was always a large part of the show. So we never got to see a counterpoint. <clears throat> and there aren't a lot of other shows that he was a large part of that we can compare it to, to like, know, like, yes, this is the Dilworth style, you know? Exactly. But there, uh, there were numerous writers. He, he wrote a lot of, and he wrote a lot of the episodes that I remembered, like a lot of the key flashbulb memory episodes that I recall from when I was a kid, when I was like 10, watching this show. Uh, other writers include David Cohen, Irvin Bauer, Billy Aronson, Craig Sherman, Bill Mercilli, Laurie Lazarus, which is a great fucking name, Alan Newworth, and Gary Cooper. This might be, like, the first time, besides, like, maybe Doug, which was earlier than all the other shows, that there's, like, no crosstalk. There's no crosstalk with any Nickelodeon people. There's no crosstalk with anybody else from Cartoon Network, which is super weird, because Cartoon Network is all about the crosstalk. But, like, yeah. this show is almost like an island, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, I don't know, I think you get shows that are, when it's a lot of people starting gig you get that mm -hmm. um yeah it seems like it seems like courage m might have been one of those shows but i just don't i just don't recognize those names personally i don't know what they went on to do we have a really the voice acting is great in the show <laughs> the voice acting is all great um hey you there yeah, I am. Oh, sorry. So, I was getting a call, so I didn't want it to show up on the the thing. Uh, okay. Voice acting's all great. Courage, the main character, really, was voiced by Marty Grabstein, which is an interesting last name. Very gifted with sounds, Marty. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Because... I would say 90% of what Courage utters from his mouth is screaming. Various... Or, like, other upset sounds. Various types of gasping, yelling, screaming, and I... Terrified babbling. Yeah. The other 7% are, like, happy dog noises, and then 3% is talking. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he mostly talks in like catchphrases, though, which I'm not personally a fan of. But anyway, we can we can dress that. Later. The things I do for love. Yeah. We have the not foil. He's not. A, she's not a foil. She's his owner, Muriel Bag, 
the little For some reason Scottish. She's Scottish. She's old. She's oblivious. She's super cool. She's kind of an environmentalist. Plays the sitar. Plays the fucking sitar. Like, it, well enough that she can go to Radio City Music Hall to play it. <laughs> we'll talk about the show's narrative structure, which, lol, what structure? Um, <laughs> but we have Eustace Bag, the, um, <clears throat> the terrible band, who's voiced by Lionel Wilson in the first 33 episodes of the show, and then Arthur Anderson in the last 33 episodes of the show. Oh, so I only got through, like, the first half because of internet problems. Is it a discernible difference? I don't think so. Okay. I think they did a pretty good job. That's good. Okay. Yeah, because it's, like, with Dexter, it's, like... The second voice actress does a great job, but it's like it is discernible just ever so slightly, you know. <clears throat> but that's good that they, they he captured the Eustace essence. Uh, there is there are a couple side characters that show up with some frequency. So if you remember Courage, for some reason this old family with this old TV and apparently like old plumbing has a computer in their attic and the computer is sentient. It's such an early 2000s depiction of like what using the internet is like. Yeah, basically Courage <laughs> types stuff into it and the computer talks to him. And he has a posh English voice and he's like mean to Courage. He's voiced by Simon Preble. We have Dr. V oh my god. His name is His Dr. Vindaloo. Dr. Vindaloo. God, I know. Um, Dr. Vindaloo is the family physician, and he is voiced by Paul Schofler. We've got Eustace's mother who shows up, who's our resident corporatist, um, surprisingly enough. She is voiced by Billy Lou Watt. And then we get the villain Cats, which is the best villain in the show. He is voiced by Chauffleur as well. Welcome to Cats Motel. I'm Cats. Is he the only villain that shows up multiple times? No, uh, you. Eustace's mother is a villain. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I've only seen the one episode with Eustace's mother in it. No, there are multiple episodes. episodes where she returns as a villain. Oh, interesting. Just a villain in the way she was in the first episode with her? No, or? no. She, uh, I'll explain that when, when I talk about her a little bit. But she shows up in multiple episodes in some antagonistic role. Interesting. Okay. I unfortunately, I got to watch very little it's, of the show compared to like what I would normally watch, unfortunately. Her her role is actually more recurring than any other person except for cats. Wow. And, and LeQuack. LeQuack shows up a couple times. Oh, that's great. Well, so, he does say in the, fir in the first LeQuack episode, he's like, you haven't heard the last of me. So, you know. He's telling us that he will show up. 
it it was a true statement. <laughs> what is with okay? We should get here eventually. They really hate birds on Courage the Cowardly Dog. Birds lo- are always dicks. Well, and and the first and ducks specifically. The first pilot of the show is the chicken from outer space, which is creepier than almost every episode of the main show. Um, it was the first episode of Courage the Cowardly Dog I ever saw, and in it, Courage goes, like, they have a, a hen house on the farm that we never see again, and they find an egg in the hen house, but it's an alien chicken egg, and Eustace eats the egg... And he slowly starts turning into an alien chicken monster, and it's really, really upsetting. And eventually, there's another alien chicken that Courage shoots with a laser gun and turns him into, like, a cooked chicken, like, no head, little fluffs on the leg, and it's a really upsetting episode. Um... Well, I wonder if, like, I haven't seen the pilot, but there is another episode where, like, a cooked chicken with no head. That's, like, that's a callback. And is, that's yeah, a direct. I'm trying to grab a head. It seems like it's a callback. That's a, Well, it's a direct sequel. Because he, yeah. and I think it's called The Revenge of the Chicken from Outer Space. So it's literally this oh. chicken comes back and tries to take Courage's head off and put it on his head. Mm-hmm. Which leads us into another... Okay, so the show ran for 52 episodes over four seasons. It released as part of Cartoon Network's uh, Cartoon Cartoon, like Friday's block. And for its short run, it had a good amount of... like It had a lot of good critical review, and it won some awards... For its for it its was nominated stuff. for a fucking Oscar. Like the Chicken from Outer Space was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, for best animated short film. I don't so, think it won though. No, it Probably was a, something French or something won. Wow, how Frenchist of you. <laughs> um though a night at the Cat's Motel did win an Annie Award. Oh, well, that's nice. That episode is also really fucking terrifying. Oh, it's super scary. It's the first episode. I'm like, my boyfriend's been out of town this week, and honestly, I don't know if I would have been able to watch that episode if he was in the house. Because <laughs> he's really scared of spiders. Yeah, it's it's really upsetting. Just because like the way they draw certain things, oh, it just... Yeah. Just if you if you go watch a night at the Cats Motel, if only because it's got cats in it, and Cats is a great villain, great voice, and he's got kick-ass theme music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cats is really fun because he's like hard to like get a handle on as a character. You're like, what are his motivations? Profit? Enjoyment? What? <laughs> No, it's. You know. I'm gonna play his theme song while I talk about cats. Okay. Cause he he has like a lot of 
mannerisms that are also creepy on their own. Like he 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 cracks his neck. Oh, the way he cracks his neck is deeply upsetting. Like and it, it, he he grabs his head and he turns it like ninety degrees, and it just makes this loud crack, and it's very upsetting. Mm-hmm. He also has this sort of like posh English accent, which if like it, it's sort of like it's sort of evil sounding in the way that like Alan Rickman was a perfect guy to play the bad guy. You know, that sort of nasal posh British accent that sounds just vaguely sinister. He always speaks very calmly. He always waits a little bit too long to start talking after another person has finished talking. His face is triangular he's got this cat well but he's got this thin posture that i don't know i think is kind of creepy uh anyway he the first episode really sets the tone for the entire show and Mm -hmm. as far as whenever you're like i wonder what this character's motivations are uh the motivation is really simple or none exists just period the show yeah, is okay. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the show is designed as I, I I don't you you can overuse the word absurdist. That's a buzzword in modern like crit, critique, but the show is surreal. That is what that's like the standard analysis is a surreal show. Centering around this family who lives in the middle of nowhere. But I think it's absurd in that it nothing nothing really makes sense. Or if things do make sense, it's this really weird internal logic that has no connection to the real world. Like, for example, there's an episode called Cat I- Cat's Island... And Muriel, Eustace, and Courage go on a vacation, which they go on a lot of vacations for a family that... A certain amount of... Who lives on a barren farm where nothing has grown in 50 years explicitly and are clearly surviving on Social Security income. They go on, like, eight vacations a season. So there are a lot of little ways like that that the show, like, if you look too hard... The show breaks, but I think it's supposed yeah. it, it's supposed to be that way. That the world does what the writers want it to do. Period. There's no other reason for things to be the way they are. That's fine. Just learn to love that. So they go to this island and they shipwreck, and Cats is there. Cats is randomly on this island where these people shipwreck. <laughs> Suspend your disbelief. Example number one. No one remembers him. No, they, okay, they don't remember him either. Muriel and Eustace are like, oh, look at this guy. He's going to give us a free room. When he clearly tried to feed them to spiders. (laughs) Not more than six episodes ago. (laughs) Yeah. Also, that, that, that is another point, is that this is one of those shows where you've got suspended time. So... 
there are very little, if any, indications that time is passing. You have no idea of chronological order except with certain episodes. So, for Eustace and Muriel, mentally, time never passes. They always end up the same at the beginning and the end of every episode. Uh, the world resets. Because a lot of times, Eustace dies or... Well, he cartoon dies. You know, gets turned yeah, into a... he never, like, dies, but there, he's, like, permanently, like, disfigured or something. Right, he gets turned into a pile of ash or a golden statue or just, like, there are... The jar of water. So, they go on this island and Katz is giving them free rooms. And then Katz turns them into mechanical objects and then has them fight in an arena... He turns Muriel. <laughs> he turns Muriel into a clothes, like a washer, and Eustace into a wrecking ball. And there's no reason he does that except in order to make them fight. Which, in and of itself, why? Why would he do that? Um, why not just watch them fight as people? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Right. It it doesn't make any sense. And I think that that is designed to throw the audience off balance. And it works. <laughs> it works. Because you never... you The show is not very predictable. No, it's really not, actually. Except for that, like, it's probably... Like, it's going to be fine at the end of the episode. Like, That's... Courage and Muriel will be fine. Eustace will... Maybe not be fine, but still fine. Arguably, you know? that is that is a sim uh, that is a product more of the fact that it's a TV show than anything else. Yeah, like yeah, for sure. They can't be like, listen. At the end of every episode, we're going to change the characters and switch to a new show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like so, within the context of a TV show, it's very unpredictable. You never know quite how Eustace is going to end up getting screwed you never quite know what the villain is gonna do you never know what their motivations are um even with cats you're never quite sure like you're you're never sure sometimes the motives are very very simple and when they are simple they're always laid out at the beginning of the episode always so one episode has a fox who's making little old granny stew. And he's like, I need a little old granny. Well, his motivation is to kidnap Muriel and make her into stew. That's all the it's motivation. Cajun. It's explicitly Cajun. Yeah, he's a Cajun a slightly fox. offensive Cajun accent. <laughs> but the soundtrack to that entire episode is great because it's like oh, New yeah. Orleans-style like downtown jazz. Yeah, and it's also like sort of a um, uh, Roadrunner episode, like Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner episode. It's clearly an homage to that. Yeah. For it's sure. Good. But so motivations are sometimes very clean cut, but even when motivations are clean cut, the way that people go about getting from point A to point B is is highly variable and mm -hmm. the show the show vacillates between comedy and horror because there are some episodes that are just comedy episodes they're really not scary at all but then there are also artsy episodes that are neither 
Explain. A hunchback episode. Aww. Like there are. Also touched my heart. There are episodes that I classify as artsy, but I suppose it would be more accurate to say that they're heartwarming episodes. They have a slightly off-putting aesthetic, but they always end up heartwarming. And usually the villain of the heartwarming episodes is Eustace. Is Eustace, yeah. So Eustace... Yeah, the Hunchback episode, the Curse of Shirley, like... The the tree episode. Oh my god, the tree episode. Yeah, yeah. Curse of Shirley, like... it, it's a little frightening in the like hallucinations that Eustace has in the way that it would be like frightening to have, you know, a family member with like severe dementia who sometimes like, you know, is having a hard time. Right. But like it's genuine, gen- generally just about how like Eustace is dick, <laughs> like, you know, it needs to not be such a dick. Really all the heartwarming episodes are about that. Well, she, he is just a dick. That is. Yeah. Eustace, like, genuinely, like, abusive, terrible person. And based on the 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 Mother's Day episode, the only episode I've seen that has Eustace's mom, Eustace's mom, also genuinely abusive, terrible person. Yeah, absolutely. And you could dig into that and talk about how trauma reproduces itself. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, that episode, like, that's in the first season. That's a pretty early episode, and you're like, like, watching it as an adult, you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, there's a reason that Eustace is the way that he is. It's not good. Before we get more into characters, because we'll definitely come back to that, is we do, we have our own particular analyses of cartoons, I should say that because of the surrealist nature of the show, it's sort of like an ink blot test in that I think because there are your schema for the show is non-existent almost, like you have a very basic schema, but the way it operates and the things that happen sort of are unique to the show and really don't fit into any other cartoon. So when you watch it, you sort of create your own rubric for what you get out of it. And they didn't really do political stuff. There's some. There's some that you can pull out of it, but I don't think that they intended anything high, to borrow a phrase, highfalutin. Yeah, no, I don't think so either, but I do think that typically, like, horror, um, even horror that is not aiming to be, like, allegorical or something like that, is really interesting, like, analytically, like, like psychologically, uh, politically, culturally, analytically, it's really rich, because what we are afraid of, or what we are not afraid of, says a lot about us individually and as a society. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm already getting ideas of what you mean. So, for example, the fact that these three people are situated alone in the middle of nowhere already, like, sets a tone for the type of horror 
that they experience or specifically the challenge that they face whenever something bad happens, which is by themselves, which is they're by themselves, which you, I, you could construe that as like fears arising from individualism, the fears of Mm -hmm. rural living. I, I, I think that you can draw a lot out of it, but we, I, I, think I would say up front the most of that stuff is unintended if you sat down with Dilworth I don't know if you asked him questions like well what do you think the show what do you think you wrote in the show you know and what does that say about the fears of American Midwesterners I, mm-hmm. I don't know if he would have that much to say though okay the one thing that I do think of is I sit there and I look at that farm all the time and every episode I'm like, what the fuck does the farmer grow? Like there's not anything like there. It looks utterly barren, like not just fallow, not just that he's not growing anything, but barren. They're supposed to be in Kansas. There should be wheat everywhere, but there's nothing. It looks like a desert. And then at one point in the tree episode, Eustace says, Nothing has grown here for 50 years. And he says that he has never been able to grow anything. And yet he is a farmer and he lives on the farm and has a truck and a tractor. And he has never been able to grow anything. And I think that that's really interesting coming out of like Dilworth having grown, like, grown up with the products of the Green Revolution but also during the farm crisis of the 1980s, right? It's really interesting because it basically, like, we have created a world where farmers never can't grow anything anymore because we have so much, like, fertilizer that basically makes it impossible for you to not be able to grow anything. But in the 1980s, and it's happening again right now, like, farmers were killing themselves in record numbers, because um, even if they could grow things, they couldn't sell it, right? There was a huge crisis. So that part, I think it's that's just a really interesting but page, detail. But Paige, uh-huh. capitalism is the most efficient way to allocate resources. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, just that detail, it's like... It's it's a detail that like almost never gets addressed, but is omnipresent in the show. Because if the farm in the middle of nowhere had like actual fields of wheat around it, the aesthetic of the show would be completely different. That's true. Right? The barren nature of the ground sets a lot of the tone. It, oh yeah, it's huge for the color, like the palette that they use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so part of me wonders. Really... Part of me wonders if they did that to save money. I mean, I guess you don't have to like. I don't know. Like field fields of vegetation wouldn't be that much more expensive to animate than like the because they still like put detail in the barren ground, you know. Well, uh, so a cool point about a lot of the textures used in the show is that they're pictures. And I don't know, because the ground looks like it has this 3D quality to it, texture-wise, and that might be a photo of dirt. Hmm, I didn't know. Okay, so that's an interesting note about animation, because there's a lot, 
there's also a lot of like technically interesting things going on with this show with the animation and with the music. Right. Um, we're talking about the structure of the show, but I got to give a shout out to the sound design and I got to talk about the people who were instrumental in that because the sound, whether it's the music or the sound effects or the voice acting, it's all amazing. Mm-hmm. The studio, well, so the two composers who worked on the show were Jody Gray and Andy Ezrin, but it was specifically um, a studio that they had. Let's see here. Uh, but you also do get some Looney Tunes vibes because they play classical music or classical music arrangement in the show. Yeah. A lot of Wagner. A lot of Wagner. You hear Ride of the Valkyries, naturally. Yeah, many times. I also know that, like, I was reading about the creation of the theme song specifically, and it's basically, like, there were composers, and they were like, what should we do? And Dilworth was like, make it weird. And so they made it really weird, and he brought it back, and he was like, no, weirder. <laughs> and um, he was like, what if we had some just weird voices, like hollering over it and some kazoo? Yeah, so it's like basically a collaborative effort between like the composers and John Dilworth to create just like really bizarre music. My cat's freaking out. He he's like, "What, dude? What are you yelling like that for? Why are you making these sounds?" Which is how I feel when I'm watching the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, The show is a Hanna Barbera cartoon, as much as I can't believe it. But I mean, you could see it. It does not look like one. Like compared to like. Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Lab, even though you know all the early Cartoon Network shows are Hanna-Barbera, it doesn't look like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And uh, you get some of that in the homages that the show does. Sure, yeah. But overall, Um, it's, it's sort of its own thing, and it was animated by Stretch Studio... Stretch Films, which is... Dilworth's own studio. Yeah. I I think it was also one of the first shows that used a combination of traditional animation and CGI. Yeah, and they use... super effective. Right, and and the reason it's super effective is because they use the Uncanny Valley to their benefit. Yes, exactly. They use CGI. Like, first of all, CGI was really bad at that time. And, like, they, it almost is like they intentionally used bad CGI. And they used it to either give things a little bit more weight that wouldn't otherwise have weight or to make them look extremely ethereal and otherworldly. And both, both are very prevalent. And you see mm-hmm. one episode has, like, a demon mattress... And the demon uh-huh. mattress, which is a uh, homage to the Exorcist, the the whole well, the whole episode is essentially because Muriel gets infected by a demon, and she does a lot of exorcisty things. Yeah, she turns her head all the way around. She projectile vomits. You know. Another way, things. and if this were a podcast about films, 
we would be like, and this is just another way that the exorcist basically created the foundation for a whole generation of horror and horror homages. Uh-huh. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, but no, so the, 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 the mattress gets delivered by two rats, which the rodents in the show are animated very creepily, again. Oh, yeah. And the carriage, they, they deliver it in a horse-drawn carriage, and the carriage is, through, is CGI. And the and way it moves... You're like, okay, this is demonic. Cool. Exactly. Out of this world. It, it shakes very stiff-like, and it's blocky. It, it works really well. It's or the most famous Courage episode that's like a meme all the time. You know, return the sub. It's the curse of King Ramses, right? Ramses is CGI, and that's why he looks so fucking creepy. The man in ghost, the man in ghost, King, King Ramses. The man in ghost, the man in ghost. Um, great, great soundtrack to that episode. <laughs> it took me like a couple of times watching that episode before I realized what was going on with the song. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I when I was a kid, I didn't know what it was saying, but I I could hear it now. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> so, essentially, um, sound design is amazing. We talked about that. Show is creepy. Uh, yeah, so uh, most of the time it's not scary, it's just creepy. The entire show is creepy. I think I've already spoken in the Rugrats episode about my academic... my Well, one of my mentors from undergraduate life, he's a psychologist and he does research on creepiness, what makes things creepy, rather than... I also took classes with Frank during my time at Knox. Right. And he... Uh, I talked a little bit about what makes things creepy. You can go back and listen to that. I'll just summarize and say that it's when things are like they normally are, but slightly different, like different enough where you get like morphological changes in body parts or proportions, light, uh, schemas that don't quite fit what you normally have. And it's just enough to make your brain go, this is different. You should pay attention, but it's not enough to go, you should be afraid and run away. So that's mm -hmm. that's creepy. And the whole show is creepy. Even the heartwarming episodes have... The Hunchback, there's an episode with a hunchback who comes to stay with the family, and he's really cool. And the whole show is basically him and Courage being bros. Mm -hmm. the, but he's... Really upsetting looking, and the bells, the sounds that the bells make, make me feel super weird. The hunchback is basically a lump. Like, not a tall, torso-like lump, but just, like, a piece of lint. It's like they animated a piece of lint and stuck buggy eyes super on it. Super buggy eyes. And that's, that's, that's something that makes every non-human... Or more, yeah, it's what it, it makes every non human creepy is they animate them with eyes that stick out of their head like a pimple. So it's three, yeah. it's a cylinder, almost 3D, shooting out of their head. 
and they're lumpy. Eye stalks, like they're snails. They're stumpy and it's gross. Yeah, super icky looking. Okay, but do you know what I'm saying about, like, I just want to confirm that it's not just me with the Hunchback episode with the bells, but they, okay, uh, like, he the- plays bells, he teaches courage to play bells, and the bells have this very ethereal sound that I find unsettling. Well, bells usually sound ethereal. That's kind of like the timbre of bells. But It's like extra ethereal. Chris. They probably filtered it through some sound equipment to make it sound reverby and maybe yeah. a little bit shimmery. I don't know. I think that they sound a little bit dissonant, but I didn't think they they don't creep me out. I thought they were actually kind of like ethereally beautiful. Like they're pretty but also unsettling. That's how I felt about the uh the uh bells. Um so sound design is great. So we've got our main cast of characters, which this is not an ensemble show. No, it, not at all. It's about courage. It's and about courage. Eustace and Muriel. And the show kind of, I think the show, even in its name, is trying to trick you in a lot of ways. Because courage is not actually cowardly. No, he's incredibly brave. Like he, like he gets startled very easily, and he freaks out. But he always rises to the challenge. Always, yeah. he never yeah, I mean, like, cowers. Courage, the easily startled dog isn't as good of a title for a show. Well, it, it sort of fits with Western slash American ideas of what a coward is. It's like a yeah, coward is afraid at all. A coward is somebody who expresses fear. Yeah. Um, but no, courage. What courage is brave because in the face of his fear, he does shit anyway. Always, he's he, no, like always saves the people around him, and not just like the people that he likes, just like everyone. <laughs> Right, if there you need to be saved. Courage will save you. There are opportunities where villain-esque characters will will be in danger and he'll basically get the guilty conscience look on his face and he'll save them. Yeah, like he saves Eustace every episode and Eustace is never anything other than horrible to him. It's the question should be asked if he would help Eustace if he didn't love Muriel. I wonder that, too, because Muriel loves Eustace so much for, like, it's, I don't understand. (laughs) I don't understand why Muriel loves Eustace. So Courage is not a cowardly dog, like misnomer number one. Um, He does talk, but people don't... (sighs) Sometimes Sometimes people react to his talking and sometimes they don't. It's very hard to say. It's just like Stewie from Family Guy. Uh, like it is, is it? like inconsistent responses to his talking. One of the best parts of the show is when he's trying to warn people about a dangerous thing and he turns in, he, he does this literal pantomime of objects, but always like a little bit turn into monsters. <laughs> yeah. But it's always a little bit different 
than the monster. And when the monster or the danger is like existential and not a thing, but more so like a state of being, he'll turn into random objects. Yeah. <laughs> like expressing the fact that he doesn't know how to pantomime abstract concepts. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Who does know how to pantomime abstract concepts, though? I... I... <laughs> Not me. I don't. That's true. I They're hard. It depends on what the concept is. <laughs> Some concepts are easily concretified. Okay. <laughs> like... Heavy. Heavy is a concept. Okay, okay, fair enough. But it's not an abstract concept. Uh, words can have weight. That's, Fine. That's abstract, Paige. Fine. I'm not gonna fight with you about this. <laughs> um, good. Choose your battles. So, the... So we've got Muriel who is the kind-hearted old lady who never does wrong. She embodies Midwest, like, nice. Like, the niceness of the Midwest, stereotypically. Yes. She always welcomes people into her home, regardless of physical appearance or even fucking negative past behavior. The only person that she shows dislike of is Eustace's mother. And I think that that's just like the whole, the stereotype of the in-law mother is so powerful that even mm -hmm. Muriel succumbs to it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But she, she, um, she listens to courage she appreciates courage. She's a good owner. She's completely she's really oblivious. She's she's a good wife. She could do better. <laughs> I mean, like, oh, she could do better in terms of, like, she could have a better husband? Yes, she could. Um, she would probably be a good mother if they had kids. She... She's oblivious to the world around her. Yeah, Sometimes. She, she's really, okay. Because Mira, Muriel physically looks like my grandmother, I'm going to borrow a phrase from my grandmother and say that Muriel is a Pollyanna. Muriel is super optimistic and super happy all the time to the point where she doesn't even notice what's actually going on around her. Like, she's so optimistic to the point that she's oblivious. She does put courage in bad situations because she's unable to be discerning enough. Um, there are times where if she just turns somebody away at the door because they were shady as fuck, <laughs> the show, you wouldn't have a show. The, end, the ending would play, Courage would sit on her lap, and it would be them rocking back and forth for ten minutes. <laughs> right? It's just like, there would be a knock at the door, a hamster, a gerbil would be there and be like, I want to sell you a vacuum, Glena. And she'd be like, no thanks, close the door, no problem. She, uh, Paige and I sort of talked about this on our own time, in that Muriel... She basically 
she should know better by now, especially after we get laid into the show. But it's also, it's like simultaneously un, like problematic but endearing that she, her brain just instantly applies the most optimistic view of any issue. The, she, it's really interesting. She will only see immediate life-threatening danger. That's the only yeah, thing that'll true. shock she her. Yeah, see that, yeah. Um, and you get those moments. But ugh, most of the time, she's like, Oh, courage, you're just being worried. Yeah, and she, like, um, it's funny because when she does see immediate life-threatening danger, she'll, like, scold whatever it is. <laughs> now, <thing>. courage. <laughs> That's not very nice. <laughs> you know, like, and it's, like, it's weird because it's almost like she's, like, a stand-in for, like, middle Americans are all a bunch of, like, innocent rubes. You know, it's almost like this, like, 1930s idea of Midwestern Americans. But she's Scottish. She does. She does. I don't know. When she knows what's going on, she is intelligent and she does stick up for herself. Like, she'll smack Eustace. The only person she'll defend is Courage. Yeah, I love the whole, like, punch and... Okay, so Courage always has, like, kind of a punch and Judy homage in it. But the episode with the magic stage and the like Italian crocodile really goes for it. Cause Eustace and Muriel get turned into puppets. Also Whatever. that episode as a kid, that, that episode weirded me out the most. Yeah. That's a really deeply unsettling episode. Deeply. Like, anyway. like the whole like, thing is designed to, it's just a really, it, it is, it is one of the show's existentially terrifying episodes. Yeah, because it's like, it's, it, puppets are viscerally upsetting because they're like uncanny valley, but it's also like, it's basically the fear of like, in, of slavery. It's the fear of being enslaved, you know, or just being like a, a complete lack of control, right? Like you end up in a situation in which like you are involuntarily like forced to do things against your will and you have no means to like stop it from happening or to assert your will in any way. So that, that episode is one of my favorites for sure. The, but anyway, when she hits him on the head with the rolling pin, it's a punch and Judy homage, which I really like because you wouldn't expect that to show up in an American kids show. Anyway. Yeah, no, they, um, I was telling Paige, it, they kind of have a, a honeymooners shtick going on. She didn't know what I meant by that. Some of you may know what I mean, but... I know what the show is. I just did, couldn't think of it for a second. One of these days, Dolores, pow, right in a kisser. Her name was Alice. Or Alice, straight to the moon. <laughs> straight to the moon, Alice. Um, yeah, it was Jackie Gleason. Wasn't, wasn't abuse hilarious? So funny. So funny. Speaking of abuse, Eustace Bag is everything. He's greedy. He's violent. He's mean to the fucking dog. He's willing Daddy. to sell out Muriel for cash. Muriel got amnesia and he immediately told her that she was his slave woman. He, um, 
Eustace, Muriel gets approached to be, because of her blood type, she gets approached to make money in, like, a clinical trial. And they offer her a lot of money, and Eustace is like, you should do that, and she turns it down. Um, Muriel is humble and not greedy in the least. Mm -hmm. She gets kidnapped by these people. She gets kidnapped by these people, and Courage tells Eustace, and Eustace goes, and for a moment, Eustace is like, how could they do that? How could they do that? I gotta get Muriel back. But then he goes, or at least they need to give me their, give me the money. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, for a second there, I thought he was going to do something cool, but nope. Nope. No, nope, he's nope. a horrible person. He strangles courage all the time. Like, he's like, he's emotionally and physically abusive to courage. He's emotionally abusive to Muriel. And it almost seems like her, like, super optimistic framework is a way of, like, dealing with that. Um, he's just – and he's rude and mean to everyone that he meets. He's not just abusive to the people in his household. He just he's just that way all the time. I think that that's why the show shits on him and doesn't feel bad about it is yeah. sort of this revenge, he deserves it mentality. Yeah, he d because he does. He usually brings it upon himself, too. For example, one of his relatives dies and leaves him a case, but the relative is like, you should never open this case. And he's like, there's money in there. There's money in there. And so eventually he opens it, and there's this monster inside that takes him and Muriel and courage has to get them out of the case and he does but Eustace finds that there's money in there and so he goes back in he opens the case he gets sucked in and at the end of the episode he's trapped and he can't get out he deserves that yeah he does he absolutely deserves that he's just a really bad person I don't know it's the interesting go ahead to, like I don't, I'm not even sure like what I want to say because it's just like it's like most shows have characters that are just bad people you know they're like unredeemably bad people so that when the um, main characters like fuck them over like you don't feel bad about it but like it's interesting to see a show that included that person who was just a bad person to such an extreme degree in its episodes. And I almost feel like um, some other people have talked about how in the like in the 2000s, in the last decade, cartoons became like really cynical and sort of like mean spirited. And it almost feels like Courage is one of the first examples of that, because then you see something like. The Fairly Odd Parents, where Vicky's in there, and she's like one of the most evil characters to ever exist in television. She's like unrepentantly, irredeemably evil, and she's really just there for like bad things to happen to her, you know, or to be mean to Timmy, right? And it almost feels like Eustace and like Courage the Cowardly Dog is sort of an early version of that sort of cynical cartoon that has these just really horrible characters there. That you don't have to feel, you can watch horrible things happen to them and, like, not feel bad. Yeah, for sure. I I think that 
in the time that they have, it's hard to get deeper than that. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not like recess where you get bullies, but they have reasons for being bullies. They have like 26 mm. minutes to work with. Courage episodes are 10 minutes long. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But like, mm, I don't know, like Steven Universe episodes are 10 minutes long. Uh, you're holding an awfully high bar up to a show that predates Adventure Time. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I was just saying that like this is a trend in cartoons that other people have noticed from a particular time period and uh, particularly on really like all of the networks did it, but particularly Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon did it and it seems to fit that trend. Un unrepentant like, bully. Yeah. Basically, that like really bad things happen. So basically, just like other people have said, cartoons got kind of mean spirited for like a decade. And I'm like, you know, this is kind of mean spirited. Maybe it's an early version of that. I'm not like condemning the show for it. It's I, a good show. I think it's only a little mean spirited. It's usually at the end, like at the very end of the episode, because most of the time it's about courage saving people. So that's like good spirited. Yeah, that's true. And like, You've, a lot of episode plots end up being misconceptions, which is good. They show a lot of times where people are afraid of what they don't understand. And when they have a chance to interact and understand with something, they realize that, oh, these raccoons that came to attack us when we were camping, they, they're not mean. They wanted a mom. They don't have a mom. And so they wanted oh. they wanted to watch TV with Muriel. That's a really nice. I've not seen that episode. Or the episode with the did you watch the episode with the tower and the cannonballs? No. Oh my god! I thought the one with the pigs. How it like? Oh, it seems really creepy, but actually, this woman just likes to create art out of hamburger. <laughs> you know. And you you partially get tricked they leave red herrings partially based on stereotypes so the pigs are bigger but they're also they have a hick accent yes so but it also uses a history of horror movies to do some of that work for it uh-huh the pigs evoke texas chainsaw massacre yes or, yes, they do. And I haven't even seen the original Ch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I know that they evoke it. So they they do these things where, like, they use a lot of typical sci-fi or horror plots, like aliens from outer space. Did you watch Car Broke von Yis? No. Oh, my God. You've, you haven't watched a lot of good episodes, but that's okay, because I have. And I can tell okay. you... That one of the episodes involves brains with tentacles. They're aliens that they walk around. Oh, very frightening. And they, st they steal Muriel's kindness because they want to be, they want to know what they should not be to destroy the universe. Oh my God. So, um, like aliens coming to probe people and do things to them. That's very sci-fi typical. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like baby's first horror movies. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it really is. And that was also, like, there were, that was a pretty popular, like, sub-genre at the time where that show was made. You also have, like, So Weird and Are You Afraid of the Dark and all that other stuff that's all, like, kids also enjoy having the shit scared out of them. Yeah, but that, that's always been a fine tradition in the Western canon. See, Of, like, ghost stories? Uh, yeah, of, of fairy tales that scare the shit out of kids. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that, like, before the... In terms of, like, children... I guess it was, like, also a common subgenre because this was, like, the birth of children's television media, which, like, we hadn't really had before. Um, but, like, before, there had really only been, like, Scooby-Doo... And whereas in, like, the late 90s and early 2000s, you got, like, a bunch of shows where, like, the explicit purpose was, like, we're going to scare the shit out of these kids on TV. Because there's there's a lot of fun in getting the fear system to activate without actually being in danger. Yeah, it, for sure. It feels like humans chase that sort of stimulation. So kids are humans, thus... They like to be scared. That's why kids like haunted houses, too. I did not like to be scared as a kid. I will tell you that right now. I super hated to be scared. I did until I watched the first Halloween when I was seven years old. And I couldn't sleep well for, like, weeks. I didn't like horror movies until, like, last year. (laughs) Well, better late than never. (laughs) Better late than never. Um, that's like that's an exaggeration, but still, yeah. So, yeah, like that was like courage. Just like fits fits into that little subgenre, but it's interesting because it was like all those other shows were like that were like let's scare the kids. Were like so weird was like the X Files for kids. You know, it was always like sort of like. Ghosts or... Kind of like weird ghosts or like creatures or like are you afraid of the dark and stuff like that was basically just like Goosebumps stories where none of them were like surreal in the way that Courage was. No, yeah. The surrealism... I think that the surrealism keeps it from becoming fear-inducing and keeps it in the realm of creepy. Hmm... Uh, I don't know. Well, and it's a cartoon. There are no stakes. You know that no one's going to die. You know that nobody is going to end up permanently disadvantaged. Yeah. I think for me as a kid, like, the surrealism almost made it, like, more frightening to me as a kid. Like, I think it is like the breakdown of, like, rules and logic were difficult for me to deal with. I think that that makes it exceedingly creepy but i think Mm -hmm. that it keeps it away from fear it's 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 the difference between being chased by a lion and watching somebody cut open a lion and take out its organs oh oh i guess like for me like for me personally and like this is another thing about like what you are afraid of or what you are not afraid of, like, says a lot about you. And, like, to me, the idea of, like, watching someone cut open a lion and take out its organs is worse. Like, fear 
is a visceral thing. Like fear is like, my life is in danger. I am going to run away from this threat. I am going to use this, like, you know, this adrenaline to solve the threat and save my life. Whereas watching someone cut open a lion and remove its organs is disturbing. Like it, but it's like, that's also a feeling that I seek out. Like it's worse but also a feeling that I seek out more because like a ton of adrenaline. I get that all the time. I have an anxiety disorder. <laughs> like, I don't need that anymore. Whereas like finding out about something really disturbing is like worse, but also I want it at the same time. Right. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's strange. And as a kid, it was weird because I like couldn't deal with stuff. Like I did not like to watch something like courage, the cowardly dog, but I did really like, graveyards you know okay yeah i see where you're going i see i yeah it's it's a complex sentiment that i'm trying to convey which is perfect for a complex show like this and i do want to speak a little bit about a couple of uh outside world connections that you can make with the show so first and foremost there are tiny morals peppered throughout There's an episode about vanity with some monks and the moral of the episode is that everybody is, everybody is prone to vanity, even monks who live in the hills of Peru and almost hang Eustace for wearing a gold hat. Um, There's a fair anti-corporate streak or skepticism of like corporate entities and the pharmaceutical business because there are episodes about um, stealing people to make them force grow hair to turn that hair into objects or giving Eustace a hair tincture that also gives him psychic powers or... Eustace's mom trying to cut down coral reefs with little people living in them because coral makes the best wigs. God, that's a very Seussian episode, isn't it? It, it, actually, it actually is an homage to Seuss because it's very much who. It's very much whoville. Because they sing and they work and the songs rhyme. So nice. that episode is all cute, no creepy, which is rare. For courage, but becomes more common as the show goes along. Maybe they just run out of creepy ideas. That, and they don't want to be... I think the last thing they want to be is unoriginal. Yeah, that's... yeah. But then you get episodes like The Lady and the the Queen of the Dark Puddle. Mm -hmm. Which you said is like baby's first dentata. Baby's first vagina dentata. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's got... That's what that episode is. She's got all the teeth. Yeah. Um, but there yeah, are, there's, like, the giving... her sexuality to, like, lure people. She uses her sexuality to lure someone, but ultimately, like, she is dangerous and, like, terrifying. And it's, so it's, it's, the sa- it's the same anxieties that, like, uh, like, vagina dentata is about, you know? Yeah. You get the Giving Tree episode... Where this tree is a bull, like this tree is a bro, and it gives the family what they want, 
but they have to cut it down because Eustace wishes Muriel had a bigger head. And so she grows a big head. And the tree's like, courage, courage. He's got this deep, melodic, calming voice. <laughs> Take the flowers from my branches. And, and the parable is like, don't be a dick, Eustace. Yeah, don't be a dick to the tree, leave the tree alone. <laughs> exactly. Fucking Eustace, man. But you, you, you get some, you could argue you get some, you also get some anti-government sentiment in there, particularly the military. Because the military is involved in certain episodes, and every time they're involved, they're like, LOL, we'll kidnap these people without rights. We'll destroy their house because we don't want the public to know about this satellite falling. We'll steal them because they have a valuable object. Like, the, But the military is completely incompetent. And yeah, I was about to say, they're like incompetent every time. And the general and his like subordinate do weird buffoonish things. Mm-hmm. So they're like completely... Yeah, they never, they're, they're all buffoons. And they're entirely incompetent, but they're still, like, violent and entitled and, like, do shady shit. Exactly. Which, also, they use the same character model for, like, four people. They use the same mm-hmm. character model for the archaeologist, the police chief, the general, and a boat captain. Yeah, Big white shoulders, tiny legs, huge mustache. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. But Love it. Misconceptions are also a big part of the episode. For example, one time they are forced by a pirate to hunt an eel. And the eel looks all scary. And the eel steals Muriel, so Courage goes to save it. And the eel just wanted an audience for its beautiful singing. The eel is named Carmen, and it is singing Carmen. <laughs> oh my god. The, the culture is too high. So, The Hunchback, one of my favorite episodes is about depression. Um, Paige, I really wished you would have watched it, because there's a lot of analysis that can come out of this, but I'll basically just... We're almost done here with our time, so I'll speak about this very quickly in that there's this mad doctor who has a tower that travels around Howl's Moving Castle style, and he shoots these cannonballs that make people, it turns them green, and they become sad, but they become depressed. Like, they don't move, they become lethargic. So basically, he demands money from the governor of nowhere, or the mayor, to fund this project. And he basically tricks them into giving him more money. So he turns everyone in nowhere into a sad, depressed person. And he himself is green-skinned. And he, he try, he's got this underling rat that he tries. He's like, give me a hug. And the rat doesn't want to hug him, and he's the sour person. And you later find out that he is so unbearably sad that he just wants to make everybody else sad. And it's a full 26-minute episode. 
Wow. It's a double episode. That's also actually what rural America is like, by the way. Everyone is very sad. And so, Courage, the music for that episode is amazing. It is music they only use in that episode. It is great. So, essentially... Courage feeds the man Muriel's happy plums. Because you cannot be happy unless you use these plums. Like, you, you cannot help but be happy if you eat these plums. So he becomes happy, and he hugs people, and he turns everybody back to normal. But for me, it was kind of an episode about how, like, depressed people sometimes lash out, and they want other people to be sad, because they are sad. Yeah, that's a real thing. It's rough. Um, yeah, that sounds fast. I might have to, like... It's a combination of my internet and the website that I have to use to watch Courage that's giving me problems. Because I've been able to watch Netflix just fine with no problems. But the show that I needed to watch, no. It's um, called... I might have to go back and listen to, and watch that episode. It's called The Tower of Dr. Zalust. That's a really, like, dramatic name. It's a dramatic episode. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. Yeah, that sounds good. What was the what was the episode that I was telling you the other night was, like, I thought, like, I don't think it was intended to be a metaphor for this, but it was a lot like it, what it's like to be abused by a person who is, like, liked or respected. Um, what episode was that? I'm going to have to look at our conversation. I, I don't think it was a specific episode. I think it came up when I talked about how People don't believe courage a lot of the time. Yeah, that's true. Oh, it was the they duck. Really... It was the duckling. Yes, it was the duckling. Yeah, okay, because it's like, I was saying that it's a really common trope to be like, other people like this person and can't see that this person is bad, right? That's a common trope. But, like, particularly for some reason, like, the episode about the duckling, which, if you don't know, it's an episode where, like, the duckling and Prince on Eustace, and Eustace loves the duckling, um, and the duckling does nice things for Eustace, but he, like, is trying to fuck up Courage's whole life, but Muriel at first doesn't see it either, like, and it just really said, like, I don't think it was intended, but I'm like, wow, this is, like, what it's like to be abused by a person who is liked or respected by the other people around you. There's like, they, they, they don't see what's happening and maybe you don't feel like you can tell them because they like that other person so much. Or when you do try and tell them because they're so liked and respected, the people are like, no, it really like it could, it like you must've misunderstood. Like the duckling is such a good guy. The duckling wouldn't, do that the duckling wouldn't try and do that to you or hurt you you know and i was just like damn this is like i don't know it's kind of like i don't think it was what it was, the message it was intended but it very it really spoke to me on that subject yeah again inkblot test yeah yeah i suppose it is but as far yeah, as like also like go ahead as far as psychology goes i this episode, like, the show has stuff that you could really get into, but I don't, a lot of themes don't recur. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I don't feel sure. confident saying that it's 
the show more than it is me. And I feel like it's especially sparse on political stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, we had a fan uh, tweet at us and say that it was about Kansas's privatization of spookiness. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the government is still in charge of administering spookiness in Kansas or if they have privatized it. That's that's up in the air, so I can't speak to what the show says about it. Well, it was under – spookiness was underfunded for a while, but the Supreme Court ruled that they had to increase <laughs> spooky funding – Oh, man. Yeah. But like they haven't been able to agree on like the spooky funding and it's really holding up the entire like, you know, just general emotion budget of Kansas. Right. <laughs> the spookiness is a metaphor for education. <laughs> if you um, know what's going on in Kansas politically, maybe read about it for like 10 minutes. It's not good, folks. It, it's, it's a potential crystal ball for the future of conservative all effects. of america yeah yeah right now like in iowa right now we're trying to do do the stuff that kansas did like five years ago even though we already have kansas to show us that it is not going to go well so that'll be a fun adventure for the children of the future yeah it's gonna be but great I, I, I give courage I give courage the cowardly dog five out of five stars. That is my personal rating. Yeah, I'm sure if I'd been able to watch more of it, um, I would have had you know like felt more comfortable rating it. But I don't. It is a good show. I did enjoy it. I didn't watch it much as a kid, so it was more of a new thing for me. Um, um I think it's worth your time. It's creepier to me now than it used to be, but that's because there are existentially creepy episodes that did not have nearly as much of an effect on me. But after I learned the word existential, I think now, now the show is scarier to me. Some of the more abstract yeah. stuff pops out a little bit more intensely. And those things are truly deeply terrifying. The way that a, a house with a dripping faucet, but nobody's there. This has been NPR. <laughs> Dripping faucet with no one there. It's like faucets normally drip when no one's there. <laughs> yeah, I was I was trying to make it artsy, but it didn't work. Um, but no, I, I think you should go watch the show. It's great. I love it. Yeah, it's definitely worth your time. Um, I would watch it. Um, yeah, but that's that brings us back from hiatus and fully rounds out our initial foray into Cartoon Network. I think next time uh, we're going to be beginning our Disney, uh, our, our Disney segment of the show. And we're going to be three. very, we're going to be very proud to present our next show. <laughs> yeah, so that should be coming along in like in in two weeks, as it was before the hiatus. Uh, don't hold us to it that strongly, though. You know, we do have lives. I have to teach the chillins starting this week. They're adults. You teach adults. <laughs> they're they're mostly eighteen to twenty two year olds, but you're right; they are adults. They're, they're le legally legally adults, emotionally children. <laughs> I I I respect them as peers and individuals. But for for those of you that are are listening to the show, thanks so much for waiting out uh, waiting out the hiatus with us. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for listening to the show. 
Um, I've been Paige. And I've been, for the last time, Dr. Chris. <laughs> and this has been Animates. I'm going to send us off with the outro, because the outro is also great. Yep. See you next time. See you next time, guys. afraid to talk because I'm worried I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> Stupid dog! Uh, go ahead and deliver the contact info. Oh, sure. Um, you can email us any questions or concerns that you have. Uh, the email is animateease at gmail.com. That's an eight instead of the letters A-T. You can tweet at us or find content that we have put on our Twitter at animateease pod, uh, podcast on twitter.com. We also have a Facebook fan page that's also animateease podcast.